Welcome to the Hope Revolution messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message. Got a question for you. Who is God? Yeah? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Who do you say God is? God the Trinity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yeah? Yahweh? Yahweh? He's a salvation and a saviour. Salvation and a saviour? Almighty. Almighty? Creator of all things. And did you say king? Yeah, king. Anybody else? Eternal. Eternal. What do you mean by eternal? Eternal is without end. Eternal is also without death. Eternal is above time. Cool. He's outside of creation. Before the beginning and after the end, he is. What was Julie saying? Friend. You said friend too? Yeah. Cool. Do you think it matters what we uh, what we think about who God is? Yes. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it does matter about what we think. Does it matter about what we feel? Yeah, how we feel about God matters. You know, He gave us a, a mind and a heart, and that mind and that heart is to experience him, understand him in some way to the capacity that we have. And um, he uses all of it. Today we come to a really, really rich passage as Paul has been chased out of Thessalonica. He's then been down to Berea with Silas and Timothy. And those from Thessalonica that were upset with Paul pursued him down to Berea. And so for his safety and for his well-being and to stop things being stirred up, they, they actually send Paul on by himself. And Paul travels down to Athens. And that brings us to this passage in Acts 17. And I'm going to do the thing I hate doing, which is reading in front of you guys. <laughs> so here we go. So while Paul was waiting for them, them being uh, Silas and Timothy in Athens... He was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. That's what he normally did, isn't it? When he came into a city, he went to the synagogues. And uh, we've seen that throughout the, the journeys. And so he reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had debates with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. When he was told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city 
Come and tell us about these new teachings, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So, here they are. Who are these Epicureans and uh, Stoic philosophers? The Epicureans, they were people who pursued pleasure. Now, it's a little bit hard to actually tell where these philosophers were at because their ideas sort of changed over time. And so they're really not 100% sure exactly what their beliefs were right at this time when Paul was in Athens. But the general pursuit of pleasure, whether that was in a really unhealthy way or whether that was more in a, you know, life is good and let's eat and drink and be merry type of way. But they also, they looked for, for life to be simple, the simple pleasures of life. And that there was n- nothing beyond life. Life is the here and now. Do you know any Epicureans in your life? People around you in your workplace? That all life is about is the here and now? Yeah, there's still plenty of them around, isn't there? And then we had the Stoics, the Stoic philosophers. These guys were pantheists, which meant that they believed in multiple gods and they, they reasoned deeply, they thought things through. But they also were fairly um, fatalistic and were really at the mercy of the gods. And so this is who Paul's audience is. And they've said, come with us, come up to the council. And um, the, the place where they take him to has a Greek name, which was Erepagus. But I like the, uh, the Roman name that they gave for the place, which is Mars Hill. Much easier to say. <laughs> so anyway, they take him to Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is up on this, this sort of lump on the main hill in the middle of Athens. Has anybody been to Athens? Everybody's seen pictures of Athens, though. So in the middle of Athens, there's this hill that goes up and they basically chop the top off and there's this huge temple, the Pantheon. Massive columns. And that is the temple of the goddess Athena. Right, And just about 200 metres away from that, down on this lower lump, is this sort of rocky outcrop. And this is where they brought Paul for their council. So here he is standing below this awesome piece of architecture for the day. I was reading, I actually Google mapped it, and I was reading some of the uh, tourists' comments. And one of the tourists said, this place you go and it just swallows you up. It is that overwhelming and that much awe of what the place is like. And so this is the place where Paul finds himself, having gone through the, through the town and uh, seen all their gods and their temples and their, their idols everywhere. Brought to a place which I think is probably the equivalent to our modern-day YouTube. Here they are. The, um, the philosophers spent all day looking for something new. 
Another Twitter, another Twitter. Nah, come on. It was strange how you look at the things of where they were at and where we're at right now, and you go, gee, there's some similarities. We really haven't gone that far from where they were at. And what Paul's about to launch into with them is actually one of the most substantial declaring of who God is to a, a Gentile audience that we have anywhere in Scripture. And so those parallels about these philosophies and ideas that still travel on today in people's lives and how Paul actually goes to talk about them still has a whole heap of relevance. And so what I'm wanting to do is actually step through and we're going to basically pull it apart verse by verse and see what it is that Paul is doing. What is it that Paul is explaining about who God is to these people? So we start, we uh, step on to verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. I mean, he's walked into town and they say about Athens at this sort of time that there was probably more idols than there were people in Athens. So for Paul to say, I perceive that you're very religious, you could take that two ways. He's either having a go at them or he's actually trying to connect with them. But he's really not undermining them. I think, you know, he's, he's actually going, what I see has moved me. And um, you're really broken. Everywhere I see around me, these idols, all these things that you're doing to try and pursue your way to God. And, and so he wants to connect with them right where they're at. And he doesn't let that put him off. For as I walked along, I saw many shrines. And one of these altars had this inscription on it. To the unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. Why would Paul do that? God's really clear. No idolatry. <laughs> hey, there's this idol over here. I want to tell you who he is. Does that make any sense? Why would Paul do that? Paul wasn't actually pointing them to be idolaters. They already were. It's also in the background, potentially, that there were so many gods and so many idols in Athens that the authorities had actually said, no more. Don't bring any more foreign gods in this place. We've got enough. Don't bring in any more. In fact, we're making a law. You can't bring any more. And so it could possibly be that Paul's saying, I'm not here to break the law. I'm here to talk to you about who God is. And I want to do that without getting myself into more trouble like I just did up the road in, in Thessalonica. It's either that or he's going, I want to actually connect where, you, where you're at. I see that you've actually allowed superstition to get hold of you so badly that you've even gone, 
Well, just in case a God that we don't know turns up, we don't want that God to be offended and, dest- and destroy us. So we'll, we'll put a plaque over here that says to the unknown God, just in case. Either way, Paul is trying to pick up where these people are at. goes on. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. So as Paul actually comes to talk to these people, he doesn't start with scripture because that's what he would do in the synagogue, isn't it? Because they actually understood scripture. But here, what Paul does is he actually uses a, a biblical framework and he goes, well, where does, where does the scripture start? Genesis 1, God is creator. God is overall. And so he uses the, that biblical framework. And what we're going to see is Paul takes them from God is creator to the last day of judgment. Very quickly he'll step through that. And what we're actually getting is more like a, um, the outline of his, his message. We don't actually get the full amount. It's sort of said that these philosophers would have been there all day, every day, listening to things. They didn't just give Paul, you know, five minutes. They actually, Paul would have built that out. But, so we get this really densely packed outline. But Paul actually says, this is not a foreign God. This is the God of everything. The God who created the heavens and the earth. He's not some foreign God that you can just push off. He's the God of you because he's the God of everything. He's relevant to you. And what's more, he's not served by all these temples and and idols that have been built by, by your hands. It's not by your efforts that you're going to be able to get right with this God because he has no needs. He actually satisfies our needs. So while he's saying, I see that you're very religious people, he's not saying, you've got it all together. He's in fact saying, you haven't got any of it right. And he's actually trying to correct them back to what it is that God is. He's there to declare the supreme God who is over all. How often is it that you come across somebody who seems to have their, some sort of a religious framework in their life and you go, well, I can't really share the gospel with them. They're Baha'i, they're Muslim, they're Buddhists. They have their new age beliefs. You know that that is a lie of our culture and our time that we find ourselves in. We can go so simply... My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. We won't challenge each other. 
And here Paul is in a city with potentially 30,000 gods and these people that have, have dedicated immense resource of their arts and their, and their skills, their architecture. You know, he's standing below this massive pantheon. And he doesn't allow them to say, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. He declares the God who is going to set them free. The God that actually doesn't need them, but that, that they need him. And so we get caught up in the lie of our time of going, their truth is their truth, we'll leave them alone, we won't interrupt them. And God is saying, no, I love every person. I've created every single one of them. My purpose is to reach into everybody's life. We so often perhaps even do the same in our own lives where we'll stick God in a box. I mean, in, in some ways, that's what these Athenians, the people of Athens, were doing. You know, build a temple, stick God in a box, make an image of them. Do we do that in our own lives? Do we sometimes allow God to be in the box of Sunday morning, two hours? That's the box he gets for the week. I think we can all be found guilty of that at times, can't we? And yet, if we allow God to be put in a box in our own lives, how can we burn with desire to see the lost saved like Paul did? Paul was transformed by a miraculous move of the Holy Spirit that so profoundly affected him that everything from that point forward was transformed. It was... Everybody needs to know about God. I'm not happy with just going, okay, I was wrong, God confronted me, and now I'm made right with him. Paul allowed that to bubble out, to transform the way he went about the rest of his life. He was beaten, he was imprisoned. Because he went around turning, up the, turning the world around him upside down, or maybe it was turning the world around him up the right way so it actually looked towards God. That was how Paul allowed God into his life to affect his life. And I wonder when I look at my life, have I let God in enough for it to burn in me with passion for the lost, for those around me? A couple of months ago, I was talking to Matt and we we're talking about the need for a, a burning passion for the things of God in our lives. And I went, yeah, I've let God in a fair bit, but I don't know that I would declare what God's doing in my life at the moment as a white-hot passion. But is that the way it should look if I, if I let him out of his little box that I keep him in? I think it is. Have you allowed him to do that at any point in your life? One of the things we've been talking about as leaders is that, that there is this sense of, uh, of things that have been allowed to, to be shut down in our lives. 
things that have become dormant and that we need to stir those back up because God is not a dormant God. God's a God who's alive and we find ourselves in a place in history where the church has been in decline now in the Western culture for seven decades, 70 years. And this is where we find ourselves in our place in history. What is it that God's saying to us about how that should look and how should that be? How are we allowing that to just affect us and go, I'm okay with things just becoming a bit dormant? Because the whole thing's in this sort of wind-down mode. That's how people around me, the, 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 the enthusiastic Christians, are actually pretty wound down compared to what faith and living with God looked like historically. You know, we've had it pretty simple, pretty easy. You know, it, throughout history, when the church survives the best, when it's in persecution. You know? And to be blunt, that time is coming. We see our government setting laws that actually say, oh, what you pray for somebody? We, we will actually have a say on that. We're going to shut you down and we're going to actually potentially throw you in prison if you pray a certain way. Should that excite us? Historically, yes. Because when governments squash down on the church, God moves. God empowers his people. Maybe we are on the cusp of something new and fresh and excitement about what God's going to do in our culture and our society. Are we prepared to actually let God out of the box that we've got him in, in our hearts? Let's go on and see what Paul has to say for these men of Athens. I'm reading 26. From one man... He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and, and fall and he determined their boundaries. Again, he's sticking with the biblical framework. God created Adam, but he's not actually using Genesis. But it's important. Again, it's God is over all of us. His, purposes, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and to find him. Though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is, is true, we should not think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. What is an idol? An idol is God formed out of our own imagination. And let's shape him up and make him into a nice little, little uh, 
figurine of some sort, whether it's a towering one or a little one, little gold Buddha that we stick over here. It's God created in our image, not us created in God's image. And this is why Paul is saying to these Athenians, what you're doing is wrong. You've created a God in your own image. You've belittled God down. God who's creator overall, who has made you, his creatures, to serve him and to worship him. He's created you in his image. We need to get that around the right way. Stop creating God in our image and allow the image of God to imprint on us. Verse 30. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in early times. But now, but now, but now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. So why now? Is he talking about now just then? Or is he talking now, right now, for us as well? Now's the time. Why is now the time? Because Jesus has come and died and ignorance is no longer an option Because of the death and resurrection. What does he say we need to do now? Repent. Is repent a one-time thing? I wish it was. I hate gardening because you get the garden all sorted out, you get all the weeds out, and you turn around and five minutes later, what's there? Weeds again! Somehow I feel my life is a little bit like that garden. I keep letting weeds grow. And do you know what repentance is? Repentance is where we go, God, I've stuffed up again. Deal with these. uh, Can you help me, gardener? Come and weed out the weeds. Help me continue to be transformed. It's us actually exercising our free will that God has given us, that he will not override, to actually move in our lives. If you actually want to see God move in your life, you've actually got to deal with that sin, those things that you've locked him out of. And so Paul says to these guys, now is the time to repent. Jesus is what God has done to actually deal with that. Going back to what he said, there's nothing that we can add to God. But he can change us if we exercise our free will towards him. And so when we talk to others about God and about their need for God in their life, helping them to have this picture of God being overall, God being part of the whole human race, 
through Adam. He's brought us. We are his creatures. We're here to serve him. We can't leave out repentance. We can't leave out the fact that God has an expectation on us to respond to him and to keep responding to him, to allow him in. And then Paul comes to this, these last few verses. And I'm really intrigued how Paul uh, introduces Jesus to, the, um, to these guys. For he's set a day for judging the world with justice by a man he has appointed. And he has proven to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. He introduces Jesus as the judge. I must say it's not something I've reflected on a lot, that Jesus is the judge. It's not really the way I would have actually gone hey, this is who Jesus is to somebody who's far from God. You know, it's much easier to say God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for you. And here Paul says, God sent his son to stand in judgment. That you have a responsibility to actually respond to God before the final day when you will be held into account before him. So what Paul has done is he's gone, God is creator. He's given them the first Adam. We are all come from the one seed. He hasn't quite given them a filled out, you know, we've only got his outline, but I'm sure he, when he talked about Adam, he would have talked about the fall and the sin, that we're all under condemnation because of that. And then he came, brings us through to the second Adam. The man by which God will judge the world. But also by the man who which God has made us able to be able to be accepted before him. The second Adam. The man who which God recreates the whole of us. He gives us a new spirit through Jesus. But we have to respond to him as judge and acknowledge our sin before him. Come before him in repentance. Allow him to transform our lives so that we will not be found guilty. And as soon as Paul says this, He's given three responses. Verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in absolute contempt. They scoffed. How dare you hold us under judgment? 
how dare you talk about things that somebody could be beyond death. What a foolish idea. And when we talk to some people, that is the response we'll get. But that is the God we worship. That is the way God has revealed himself to us. And so we have to embrace the wholeness of that. And if people respond in contempt, sometimes it's worth having a look at perhaps how we've responded in contempt as well. And to realise that that is part of our sinful nature is to actually not give God his rightful place and to laugh and to scoff about that when we've made God little in our lives and just to be able to pray for them that they will be on a journey that will take them out of that place of contempt before God because at the end of the day it's God's business to do the, the transformation and, the, and bringing people to him it's our space to actually share And if we're laughed in the face of, that's actually okay. The other response was, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. Sometimes that's what we find, isn't it? Again, we do that in our own lives. Oh God, I'll deal with that thing later. And we don't deal with it now. When we're sharing the gospel with people, sometimes people aren't ready. And they will say, oh, we'll hear more of this later. You know these people that responded this way? They didn't hear more later. Paul moved on. Which brings us back to that whole issue of now is the time to respond. And actually encouraging people that Now is the time to respond to God. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Is really important. And I find that really hard. It's nice to give people the space. Nice to be able to allow people to make their decision in their time. But sometimes it's right to say now is the time. God actually needs you to respond. And it's being aware of, of what it is that the Holy Spirit's doing in those spaces and being prepared to go, sometimes I need to be bold, I need to lay it down, I need to say now is the time God needs you to respond. And the third response Paul got was some joined him and became believers. Among them was, can we call him dinosaur? It's almost like dinosaur, isn't it? Dicerius, a member of the council a woman named Demarius, and others of them. So by Paul being bold, by Paul being in a place, like we find in 1 Peter 3.15, that says, and if someone asks you for for your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's what we've seen Paul doing. He's he's found himself in Athens, not by his plans. This wasn't some holiday and something planned or part of his mission trip. It was just where he found himself. And because he was there, ready to respond, 
He was taken out of his usual space of, of going and preaching in the, in the synagogues. And he had been aware enough of the culture and the society around him to go, look at all these idols. What's going on here? And digging in a little deeper. And so when he was then talking to people and he got dragged into this situation, he was ready to explain why he had hope. And even though some laughed and scoffed, some said, let's put this off, there were those that joined him and and responded and believed. How ready are you to share your hope? Are you looking for those opportunities like Paul? I came to the end of this and I was left with some questions. And so I want to just share these couple of questions with you and give you a moment or two to perhaps contemplate those questions that, that I had. The first of those was, how much do I allow God to reveal himself as he reveals himself in scripture in my life? To move, exist and to live in my life. Is my picture of God big enough? Have I, have I opened myself up enough to who God is? Have I carved out sections of my life where I don't let him in? The next question was, how much do I allow what I see of people's lives around me to deeply trouble me? Like Paul allowed it to deeply trouble him. And then to do something about it like Paul did. To step out, to speak in, to encourage, to, to stir up thoughts and discussions of that. And my third question was, I wonder if there's somebody here today that needs to put legs on their faith in a new way. To actually go, today's the day, now is the moment when I will let God into my life in that part there or in that part there or in a whole way that I haven't let him in before. Is that you? Let us pray. Lord God, we, um, we just thank you that you are an awesome God and that you've chosen to uh, be part of your creation, to reveal to us who you are. Lord, we do ask that you'd open our minds and our hearts to you afresh. That we get that bigger picture of who you are and that we get the bigger picture of who it is that is lost in this world. Lord, help us to burn with white hot passion for who you are. Allow us not to be easy about the fact that 
there's so many people around us that are going to hell in a handbag. Help us to not just be captured by our society and our culture that says their truth can be their truth. My truth is my truth. I'm good with you, Lord. Because that's not enough. Because you love every single one of us little people that you've put us here. Lord, help us to be creatures that are are responsive to who you are and to want everybody to know it. Lord, help us to be uneasy about those places in our lives where we need to repent. Help us to come and bow our knee before you, to allow you in, to allow your transformation to happen. Lord, we thank you that while you love us, that you always have a place for us, that you don't override us. Help us to exercise our free will in a whole way in our lives. Help us to be responsive to you out of obedience, to hear your voice, to know your leading, to have our heads in scripture, to have our hearts open to the leading of your spirit, to know the embrace of your son who laid down all for us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church.